Andrew Womack Ministries presents part four of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. This is tape number 111 in our Life for Today Bible Commentary series. And on this tape, we continue our teaching through the book of Ephesians. We are now in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. And this is found on page 1108 of our printed materials. Once again, real quickly, the book of Ephesians, we've already covered two chapters of it. There's some amazing things that Paul is teaching in here. He's basically praying that they would get a revelation of what is already theirs in Christ Jesus. And now in chapter 3, he begins to get into talking about the mystery of the gospel, something that wasn't revealed under the Old Testament, that was clearly revealed to the Apostle Paul. And he even says here in the second verse that this was a dispensation of the grace of God that had been committed unto him. In other words, this revelation came through him. It may not have been totally exclusive, but Paul is the one that God chose to bring this revelation to the body of Christ through. So he starts in chapter 3, verse 1, and he says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. And before we get on into verse 2 and actually get the meaning of what he's saying here, let me just drop something in here. I believe that this is a real key to understanding some of the ways that Paul operated in victory. He said in this first verse, he said, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Did you know according to everybody else's outlook on this situation, they saw Paul as a prisoner of Rome. They saw Paul under the bondage of Rome, etc. But Paul here said of himself that he was the prisoner of Jesus Christ. And this is not an isolated instance. I've got in a footnote on this verse at least five different times where Paul uses same terminology and referred to himself some way as being a prisoner of Jesus Christ or an ambassador in bonds, etc. And the point that I'm making through this is that Paul did not see Rome, natural things, as being in control of his life, but rather he saw the Lord Jesus Christ as being in control of his life. He didn't empower his problems by giving them the victory, the authority in his life. He recognized that God was in control and flowing through him. And this is especially important as you recognize that uh, I've already dealt with this when we went through the book of Acts in our Life for Today studies. But in the book of Acts, there was two different times that it was prophesied to Paul that when he went to Jerusalem, that he would be bound and that he would be imprisoned. And he was even spoken to under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost not to go to Jerusalem. Now, on the surface, that looks like that Paul just flat disobeyed in going to Jerusalem and his imprisonment that resulted was actually a mistake and something that Paul brought upon himself. Now, I'm not prepared to say that that's exactly the way it was because that would be a major indictment against a man who that would be very uncharacteristic of him. His whole life was characterized by being sensitive to the leading of God. And this would be just totally uncharacteristic. And so there may be some explanation here that I'm not totally seeing and that, you know, there may may be something that I've missed here. So I'm not going to say that Paul just totally brought this imprisonment upon himself, but I am going to say that I'm sure that that's the view that most people had of this situation, and I'm sure that that thought had crossed Paul's mind. It would have been very easy for Paul to have been down on himself and saying, man, look what I've done, and Here I am at the mercy of Rome, and look what they're going to do. And that would have bred fear, doubt, all kinds of things. So, see, this is very important that Paul, whether he really had blown it and had just reconciled it and said, God, forgive me, and and I'm back 
under the control and the anointing of God, even if I got myself into this mess, or if somehow or another he you know, was doing exactly what God told him to do. Nonetheless, he was confident and assured in himself that God was in control of this situation and that Rome was not going to be dominating and control him. They could only do what God was willing to use them to do. And because Paul had that attitude, I tell you, it saved him a tremendous amount of grief, and I believe it put him in the driver's seat. See, it really doesn't matter what other people think about you and what their opinion is of your situation. It's how you view the situation that counts. There's some people listening to me who I'm sure are in situations that others may view you as a failure, that you failed in your marriage, you failed with your children, you failed with your job, you failed in health, you failed in this or that. And other people's view of you can influence you. Just like in the 13th chapter of the book of Numbers, it talks about the spies going out to spy out the promised land before the Israelis went in to take it. And it says that they came back and saw the giants that were in the land. And it says that we were grasshoppers in their sight, and so were we in our own sight. Now, see, it really didn't matter how the giants viewed the Israelis because God was going to intervene for them, and God had promised them victory. But the thing that really destroyed them and that kept them from entering into the promised land and cost them 40 years of wandering and bondage in the wilderness was the fact that they saw themselves the way that the giants viewed them. See, if they would have seen themselves like David did when he came against the giant Goliath, and he says, who's this uncircumcised Philistine? And the word uncircumcised is talking about that he didn't have a covenant the way that David did. See, David was looking at things through the covenant, not through just the natural eyes. He could have looked at himself and he says, man, look at this guy over 10 feet tall, and here I am just a youth, and look how powerful and big he is. He's twice as big as me. But he didn't look at things through the natural. And because of it, David slew the giant, won the victory, and it was tremendous. It doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter how other people view you. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. It matters what you say about yourself. And see, this is what Paul had done. Paul had reconciled this imprisonment, whether he got there by his own mistake, or if God supernaturally led him, and this is one of the consequences of preaching the gospel. Regardless, Paul was confident at this writing that he was directly in the center of God's will, that God was using this Roman imprisonment to get him an all-expense-paid trip to Rome so that he could preach the gospel. He said this in other places, that all of the things that have happened have happened rather under the furtherance of the gospel so that now the testimony of Jesus Christ is made manifest in all of the palace, etc., so see, Paul, he was looking at this differently, and because of that, he could actually rejoice. And you know, when I was drafted, the reason I was drafted into the Army is because I quit school. And this is back before the lottery system came up. This was back in 1969. And when I quit school, it just nearly guaranteed me a trip to Vietnam and being drafted. And... The reason I quit school is because I prayed about this. It's the first thing that the Lord really spoke to me, and I knew beyond any shadow of a doubt I was to quit school. I lost my Social Security that was coming from my dad's death when I quit school. I was going to be drafted. There was a lot of negative repercussions. My mother didn't understand. It really hurt her. I was asked to leave the church that I was in because they thought I was of the devil saying that God would tell you to quit school. They said you couldn't quit school and be a Christian. And there was a lot of repercussions, but I knew that it was God speaking to me. And because of that, when I quit school, 
I immediately got an induction physical notice. I went for a physical for the uh, uh, selective service. And right after this physical, I had a um, recruiter come to my home, and he got his briefcase out, spread all of his materials in front of him, and he says, you've been for your pre-induction physical, and so it's just a matter of days until they draft you. I'm going to show you the benefits of signing up, et cetera, et cetera. And so before he started talking, really, I said, I could save you and me both a lot of time if you'd just let me share something with you. And he said, sure. So I shared with him that it was God that told me to quit school. I was directly in the center of God's will. And so therefore, the way I looked at it was that if God wanted me to be drafted and to go into the army and to go to Vietnam, then I would. And that if he didn't, well, then I wouldn't. And this guy started laughing. Apparently, he didn't. Uh, he wasn't impressed with my opinion. And he said, well, I can guarantee you, you're going to be drafted. He says, it doesn't matter about God or anything. And it was real sarcastic, and it was a real affront against my faith. And I remember, as an 18-year-old boy looking at this man, I looked him right in the eyes. I stood up and I said, look, mister, if God wants me drafted, I will be drafted. And if he doesn't, then you, the United States government, and all the demons in hell cannot draft me. And I mean, I just put my foot down. That was it. The guy gathered his stuff up, left my house, and the next morning in my mailbox, I got my greetings letter. You have been selected, and I was drafted. I'm not sure that this guy didn't go straight down to the draft office and put my name in and, and draft me the next morning. But anyway, the point that I'm making is, see, now some people could look at all that stuff and say it's just totally natural. Boy, you did this, and then you countered this recruiter, he went and drafted you, and they could have said that you were there just totally because of carnal reasons, you were out there on your own, boy, maybe this never was God's will for you. If I would have looked at things that way, I tell you, I believe some of the things that happened to me would have really depressed me and have upset me. As a matter of fact, my very best friend also got the exact same situation. We both quit school at the same time, felt like God had told us to do it. The recruiter came to my good friend, and he signed up and joined the Army, and as a result, he got sent to Korea. And he spent three years in the Army. I only spent two years. Actually, I only spent 19 months because I went to Vietnam, got an early out. And um, anyway, during this, his stretch in Korea, he stayed in longer than I did. He avoided going to Vietnam, but, you know, it was a terrible time for him. He wrote me. I wrote him. I was enjoying the blessing of God. I knew that God was with me. I never doubted that. Because of that, there was a, uh, a boldness that I had. It didn't matter what situation came at me. I knew God put me in it. I knew I'd live through it. I knew I would live and not die, etc. And I came through my experience just better off by a thousand times. My best friend went through a, a much easier situation. Comparatively, he should have done much better, and yet it depressed him, discouraged him. In his letters, he began to say things about, I'm not sure I ever heard from God. I don't know if this is the Lord's will or not. See, it, it's a very good illustration, I believe, of one of the things that made me prosper while my best friend didn't prosper. It was just my confidence that I was looking at my situation, that this thing is of God, that I have sought God, I know God is leading me, and I refuse to give the United States government the control of my life. They weren't the ones controlling me. God may have used them. I was drafted and sent to Vietnam, but God was in control of my life. I really believe that. And because of it, I prospered. And I tell you, if you would apply this same principle to your individual situation... 
and quit saying, oh, man, it's you don't understand. My employer, he's just messing with me and he's doing this. Well, find out if you're supposed to be there. And if you're supposed to be there, then serve that employer with all of your heart, believing that it's God's will, not naively thinking that everything he does is of God. If he tells you to do something ungodly against the word of God, you don't have to do that. But I'm saying just overall, if God wants you to be there, then say, God, you've got a purpose in me being here. See the positive side of it and use it that way. You get that attitude, you will prosper. You'll begin to be promoted. God will bless you. People will be saved. Things will happen. But, boy, if you go in there every day thinking, what have I gotten myself into? I'm miserable. I'm, you know, And you start looking at the negative and not recognizing that God is moving through you and controlling circumstances in your life. If you miss that, I tell you, it opens up the door to many, many problems. So I could spend a lot more time on that. I want to move on. But I really believe that's an important thing here that Paul just says in passing. But, boy, there's a lot of significance in that. So going back to verse 1, he says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, word. Now, the word dispensation, it's used four different times in the New Testament. Three of those times it's translated stewardship. And this is the way that it's used in the Revised Standard Version. Uh, this phrase here was translated the stewardship of God's grace. The word steward just literally means that you are in control or administering another man's goods. And so it's talking about Paul is stating that he was administering God's revelation Specifically, in verse 6 down here, he's talking about the union between the Gentiles and the Jews in one new body of Christ. And he was the one that God had given this revelation to. So as a steward, he was just faithfully showing that to other people. It was his responsibility to take this revelation and disseminate it throughout the body of Christ. And he says in the last part of this verse that it was given to him for me to you word, which that's just old English for saying that it was for your sakes. God's gifts, the revelations that he gives, are never for us just personally, so that we can just consume it upon ourselves. But God gives us things and works miracles in our lives so that we in turn can turn around and share that with other people. See, Paul saw himself as a person who had something given to him by God that he was responsible for sharing this with other people. You know, if the body of Christ would get this attitude... I can guarantee you it would make a difference in a, in a short period of time. If every person saw that the revelation that they had of salvation, and I mean, even if you haven't grown greatly in the Lord, if you just have the revelation of salvation, if you are born again, you need to recognize that God did that, yes, because he loves you. And if you were the only person, he would have still died for you. But at the same time, he did this so that you can take this and share it with other people. You have been given a dispensation of the gospel. You have been given a revelation of God and who he is. And God did that for you personally, yes, but just like Paul is saying, he did it so that you could share it with other people. If every Christian would recognize that the things they've received were not just for themselves, but it's also so that they can share that with other people and share it and be a blessing to them. If they would get that attitude and begin to start sharing their faith, I promise you that the body of Christ would multiply greatly. Right now we have just a few people, few ministers, that are out there actually actively seeking others and trying to persuade them and draw them into the presence of God. And many Christians are just sitting there not taking what God has given them and sharing it with somebody else. You need to look at yourself as a steward. 
A steward is somebody who had the goods of their master committed to their control, and it's up to you to administer them the way that you believe your master would like you to administer them. And I guarantee you, our master, the Lord Jesus Christ, has given us the gift of salvation, and he has specifically, many places in the Word of God, told us to go and share this with other people. And we need to be about our Father's business and look at ourselves as stewards. In verse 3, he says, How that by revelation... He made, this is the dispensation that was given him, and it says, By revelation he made known unto me the mystery as I wrote afore in a few words. You know the word mystery here, it means, according to the American Heritage Dictionary, it means the quality or air of being unexplained, secret, or unknown. And so basically this is just talking about that Paul had something revealed to him by God that was previously unknown. It was unrevealed in Scripture, and if you go on down to verse 6, the, the mystery that he's talking about is that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ by the gospel. So the mystery is that the division between Jew and Gentile was going to be broken down and that Jew and Gentile were going to be united in one new body. So that's the mystery that Paul is talking about here, and he is saying that it came by a supernatural revelation. Nobody taught him this. None of the other apostles had this revelation. He was the one that actually had God impart this to him, and, and Paul was the one that was responsible for dispensing this to the rest of the body of Christ. Also in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, and these passages of Scripture, as I've already pointed out, Colossians is a parallel book to the book of Ephesians. It's ba basically teaching the same thing. If you go through, I believe you can nearly outline the two books and their, their companion scriptures. So in Colossians chapter 1, let me start reading with verse 25. He says, Wherefore I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. See, that's nearly exactly the same wording as Ephesians 3, 2, and 3. And then in verse 26, Colossians 1, 26, it says, Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So I believe that as you read the context, you can see that the wording is the same, the progression of thoughts is exactly the same. And in Colossians 1.27, Paul talks about the mystery being Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now that's not a contradiction of what he said here in Ephesians chapter 3. It's just an addition. It actually amplifies it. The mystery is the Jew and Gentile being united in one body in Christ. And also, I believe that you could even expand that to say that the mystery is also the fact of the indwelling of Christ inside every believer. Now, see, that was not clearly revealed in the Old Testament either. So Paul has been put in charge of sharing this mystery with other people, and that is what he's doing right here in the third chapter. And so in verse 4... He says, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. This is another little sideline, but Paul is talking about that through his writings, and he refers to a previous writing, I believe that probably that's here in the book of Ephesians. It's the same same thing. Just he's, He says, I wrote a four and a few words in the last part of verse 3. So he's talking about here in the book of Ephesians, he had already mentioned this. Now he's getting into a little more explanation and he says, when you read these words, you may understand. 
You know, one of the blessings is that through the written Word of God, it is given to us to give us understanding and revelation of the mysteries of God. Boy, what a blessing to have the written Word of God. And I could spend a lot of time on this. I've already hit this, who knows, hundreds, thousands of times in our Life for Today series. I need to go on, but this is just awesome that God has given us His written Word. And I mean the effort that people have gone to. You know, in, 18, in 1384, John Wycliffe, he suffered tremendously the scriptures translated into an English format. Of course, William Tyndale, 1523, and a lot of others. These people were martyred, put to death for their work to translate the scriptures into English. I mean, it didn't come easily. This was a major move of God that brought the scriptures into our language. We have a tremendous blessing, and as Paul is saying right here, as we read the word, revelation comes. It's a tremendous honor. I mean, praise God for the impact that the word has made in my life. And yet many times we fail to look at it this way. We let the word sit there and just gather dust on our tables. Man, we need to be taking the word of God and recognizing the value of it and putting this word in our heart, receiving the revelation of the mysteries of God. In verse 5, it says, "...which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of man as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit." You know, this raises some new questions here in, in verse 5. It says, "...in other ages it was not made known unto the sons of man." I believe one of the questions that could be asked is, why didn't God give this revelation of the Jew and Gentile being one body, of Christ indwelling each believer? Why wasn't this mystery explained in the Old Testament? Is it because God didn't like those people, or, or what's the reasoning? Well, it's not explained right here, but I believe in Colossia, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 there, we see that the Scripture says that the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness unto him, neither can they know them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, an Old Testament man, before you were born again, and you were supernaturally energized and created by God. You could not understand the depths of spiritual truths that we now can through the new birth. That's what that verse is saying. So basically, I believe one of the reasons that this mystery was not revealed in the Old Testament is simply because it could not have been understood. We take this for granted sometime and just think, well, anybody could understand this. Well, anybody from our reference point, all of the believers that we talk to, sure, this is very clear and they can understand it. But a person apart from the quickening power of the Holy Spirit, which is now commonplace and available to every single believer, that was not available under the Old Testament. People got little glimpses here and there of things, but they did not have the overall revelation and the quickening revelation, this revealed knowledge of the Holy Spirit that believers now have. And we take this for granted sometimes, but I tell you, I believe that under the Old Covenant, Abraham would have been just shocked, overwhelmed, to have understood what the most basic truths of the true gospel are. Abraham had a revelation of of relationship to God by faith. But to understand that God Almighty would become flesh, that would have just blown all of his circuits. And then to think that the the person who became flesh, Jesus, actually would die for his sins and go to hell and reconcile him unto God, I believe that's more than Abraham ever could have conceived or understood. I mean, that is an awesome revelation. And we take this for granted, but 
This is one reason it could not be revealed under the Old Covenant. Those people without the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that gave them a quickened revelation knowledge could not understand these kind of things. And Paul here is making reverence to this. It, it was not revealed under the Old Covenant. It couldn't have been revealed. They couldn't have understood it. It's very similar to trying to teach a one-year-old, you know, how to balance your checkbook. They just don't have the capacity. You need to wait until they get to where they can understand those kind of things. The new birth brings us access to this revelation. It doesn't automatically function. There's certainly a lot of people who've been born again that don't have much revelation at all, but it's not because it's not available to them. It's because they've hardened their heart and persisted in their own way and basically have made themselves spiritually retarded. But that's not God's will. They have the availability. Every believer has the Holy Spirit within them. And according to uh, John chapter 15 and 16, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to reveal unto them, bring things to their remembrance. And that is the job of the Holy Spirit. We just have to draw on it. And right here in this same verse, he's talking about how that this was revealed unto him. See, Paul is talking about that this isn't just acquired knowledge. It's not something you can go to school and learn. You can learn the facts, but the Holy Spirit has to quicken them to you. It has to be revelation knowledge. And Paul here is making mention of that. Paul didn't learn this from uh, the other apostles. As a matter of fact, you can see by their reactions that Paul is the one who brought this revelation of the Jew and the Gentile now relating to God in exactly the same way. He's the one that brought this revelation to the body of Christ. And so in verse 6, he begins to give explanation of what this mystery is. It says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ by the gospel. Now, again, this is something that many times we don't see how radical this statement was because now this situation has been remedied in the body of Christ. The difference between Jew and Gentiles was so effectively dealt with by the Apostle Paul that this has not been a problem in the body of Christ now for thousands of years. I'm sure there's individuals that still have problems here and there, but I mean, it was resolved in the body of Christ as a whole. So most of the people listening to me don't even perceive what a obstacle this was. But to the people that Paul was writing to, I mean, a Gentile, a person who is a non-Jew, non-Jew physically and also religiously, they hadn't gone through the religious rites and and uh, converted to Judaism, they could have nothing to do with God. As a matter of fact, you know, we read that over in Ephesians chapter 2 where it says that you were separated from the uh, nation of Israel and were enemies of God without God in the world and without hope in the world. I mean, it just literally, if you didn't become a Jew prior to this time that Paul was writing, you had no access to God. And this was the mindset that was in the Jews and so for Paul to say this, it was such a radical statement that I'm sure people just, you know, hit the ceiling over this and got mad. And yet this is the mystery, the revelation that Paul was bringing forth, that Jew and Gentile were now to be reconciled unto God in exactly the same way. And the Gentiles didn't gain access to God by becoming a Jew. Instead, the Jew had to drop his Judaism the Gentile had to drop his paganism, and they had to relate to God in one new method, which was faith in a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that a Gentile who is, say, for instance, uh, an inhabitant 
of Macedonia had to quit claiming to be a Macedonian. I mean, you still have your natural physical heritage. You may have some of your customs, but when it comes to relating to God, you don't come to God as a Gentile Christian and as a Jew Christian. You just come to God through Christ and become a Christian. In the same way, the Jews could no longer claim any special relationship to God. They didn't have any access to God that a Gentile didn't have. See, it wasn't the Gentiles are now able to convert to Judaism in an easier way. No, Judaism was no longer the factor. Being a Jew and going through the rituals, specifically the ritual that is predominant in Scripture here that Paul was dealing with was this rite of circumcision. Circumcision was no longer a matter. It didn't matter if you were circumcised or were not circumcised. The only thing that mattered was whether you put faith in a Savior. Well, this was a radical concept that some people just couldn't grab hold of, but it's the revelation, it's the mystery that was committed unto Paul that he made known, and he did it so effectively that it really did change this in the body of Christ. Notice it says here that they were fellow heirs and of the same body. In other words, it's not just that God said, all right, I've still got my Jewish people, and of course you'll always relate to me through the covenant of circumcision and through the rituals and through always observing these things and all of the Jewish customs and you just maintain that. But now I've also got another body over here. I'm going to start receiving the Gentiles and the Gentiles don't have to convert to Judaism. They don't have to go through the rite of uh, circumcision, but they also are going to be accepted. You know, that would have been much more, much more appealing to the Jews if Paul would have just said, now God is going to make an exception to the standard that he has operated under. He's going to broaden it, and Gentiles can now be saved, and they don't have to live up to these same standards. Now, that would have been something if he had just said that, and probably more people would have received that. But what Paul is saying is that, no, it's not a Jewish body and a Gentile body, but now there's only one new body, and you've got to forsake your faith and trust in the Judaism and in those rituals in the same way as the Gentiles have to forsake their pagan gods. And you've all got to relate to God in a brand new way through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You make one body, the same body, not two different bodies, but one body. Radical statements. Praise God. And all of this relates back to the grace of God. It's just the grace of God that makes all of this stuff work. It's not our effort. You know, Gentiles don't tend to go through the rite of circumcision and, you know, um, offering sacrifices, blood sacrifices, and new moon sacrifices, etc. But the thing that has plagued the Gentile church is that they have tried to um, earn God's salvation through holiness and through goodness and going to church and paying your tithes and things like that. It doesn't matter what the what the rituals are that you observe, whether it's communion, water baptism, things like that. If you put faith in those things instead of faith in a Savior, then that will void the work of Christ in your life. And we dealt with that when we were in the book of Galatians. Paul said that you can frustrate the grace of God. In chapter 5, he said that you can make Christ of none effect, that you could be fallen from grace if you go back into trusting in yourself. So this is a revelation of Paul that through grace there is only one body of believers and Jew and Gentiles are now related, fellow heirs, and of the same body and partakers of his promise. Well, that's another thing I've mentioned in the past. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it says we are partakers of his promise. Actually, Jesus, through his holiness, obtained relationship with God that is just awesome. 
I mean, he he deserved it on his own, but then he took our sins and actually elevated himself to where he was Lord over everything, heaven, earth, and even hell. And we now get to partake of his promise, of his covenant with God. The covenant isn't made with us directly. It's made with Jesus, and we have become a partaker of his covenant. Boy, that ought to forever take care of any worries that some people have about, am I worthy? No, you aren't. You get access to God through what Jesus did. You get in on his covenant. In verse 7, it says, Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Now, I've also mentioned this in a number of places. Paul constantly is referring to this, but he said he was made a minister. You don't make yourself a minister. You don't choose to be a minister. You have to be made a minister. You know, you, there are some things that you just cannot do. You cannot choose how God wants to use you. These things are by grace. God calls you, and there's many scriptures that talk about before you were formed in your mother's womb, God called you and anointed you for this purpose and that purpose. I've already dealt with that in the past. I believe that God's gifts and callings are totally by grace, and they are without repentance. It's not based on our performance. But once the grace of God comes, once the call comes then you do have to labor. There are things that you can do. There's some things you cannot do. You cannot choose what your gifts and callings are. But once the gifts and callings come, by grace, there is a lot you can do. Like Paul said, he labored more abundantly than everyone else. And so that made God's grace effective in his life. God, by grace, extends a call unto us, but then we have to cooperate. And the more we seek God, the more we yield unto God's leadership in our life, then the more effective God's grace and calling in our life will be. So Paul said here that he was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto him by the effectual working of his power. In verse 8 it says, Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints... Is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ? You know, Paul here made a statement that he was less than the least of all saints. And I believe that this is a statement of truth on Paul's part. When we look at this, some people might question this and say, well, this is kind of false humility. Paul in other places talked about and said that he was not the the least wit behind the very chiefest apostles. So Paul was not ignorant of what God had done in his life. He did not have a poor self-image in the sense that he just was constantly down on himself. This is not false humility. This is not an incorrect statement. And yet Paul is probably one of the greatest men of God that ever lived. So how can you harmonize this? You know, I believe the thing that uh, is being revealed here isn't the fact that Paul was worse than everybody else in his actions. Well, we, we could say that. You could go back to the fact that he actually persecuted Christians and killed some of them for their faith in the Lord, and that was a terrible thing. But other people have done that. That doesn't make him the least saint that has ever lived. I believe that more accurately what's happening here is Paul had a revelation of the true glory of God, the holiness of God, to such a degree that he saw himself differently than other people see themselves. Now, some people may have a little bit of hard time understanding this, but the reason Paul saw himself as less than other people was not because of what he did, but because of the revelation that he had. If you ever see yourself in comparison to God, see the true glory of God, I guarantee you, you are going to so abhor yourself at your very best. 
you will recognize that, man, you don't deserve a thing from God. You're going to understand that it's only the mercy of God that any of us can ever stand in the presence of God and have any fellowship and communion with God. Once you get a revelation of that, I guarantee you, you'll see yourself differently. You'll look at other people's faults and you won't be near as hard on them because you have seen yourself in the light of God's glory and you know that you don't deserve a thing. A person who is lifted up in arrogance and thinking I'm better than other people is a person that has never seen themselves next to Christ. I tell you, you see yourself in comparison to Christ and you're going to recognize you are so far short, you have no business ever bringing judgment on anybody else. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have a discernment. That doesn't mean that, like, if you're an employer, you can't ever fire anybody. I mean, we have to deal with people based on their actions. But as far as our love for people and as far as our comparison to other people, it ought to always be done in light of how we measure up to Christ. And I tell you, if you'll do that, it'll give you grace in your heart for other people. You know, I read a thing recently by a man who had a vision and in this vision he was in heaven and he was standing at the judgment seat of christ and i'm not going to go into great detail for one thing this is just a vision i don't know that i could verify all of this but the point that this man was expressing i believe is a godly point and it's exactly what paul is saying here and as he approached the throne he began to start seeing multitudes of people around him and some of them he recognized some of them were the great men of our century that it impacted his life through their writings and through their personal ministry. And he saw them and he just nearly wanted to fall down at their feet and worship them. They were so gorgeous. They were just the glory of God that was on their face was was overwhelming. And yet as he began to talk to them, he found out that these people were in the very lowest part of heaven. Their reward was virtually non-existent. They had barely made it into heaven. And yet at this low state... They were glorious beyond anything he could imagine. And these people began to tell him that they had failed God so miserably. They had injected their own self in there. Some of them had done the things that they had done, and they had great acclaim by men here on earth. But they had done it with impure motives. And in the presence of God, they had seen themselves for what they really were, selfish and egotistical and building their own ministry and they were just repenting and saying that, you know, they didn't even deserve to be in heaven. It was the grace of God that even allowed them to be saved because their heart was so impure compared to what it was supposed to be. They didn't have a clear revelation of that on the earth. But in heaven, in the presence of God, they saw themselves from God's standpoint, and they realized that they didn't deserve anything from God. And yet they were so thankful that He had accepted them and that they were in heaven that they were now merciful towards other people, whereas they had been judgmental on earth, etc. And we could go into great detail. But see, the point was that as, as you see yourself from God's standpoint and recognize that, God, you are so awesome, you're so holy, you're so magnificent, that in comparison, I am worse than the least of, the, of anybody else I've ever got upset with, anybody else that I've ever complained about. I'm not any better than they are in comparison to you, and what you want me to be. You ever see yourself that way, and you'll be able to say with Paul, then, man, I'm the least of all saints. Maybe not because in your actions or accomplishments, that's a true statement, but in comparison to Jesus, you see how far short you've come. That I mean, if you're a million miles away from what God wants you to be, then how in the world could you possibly boast over the person who's a million miles and one millionth 
of a centimeter away from God. I mean, the difference between us and somebody else that has also fallen short of the glory of God is so negligible when we put ourselves up next to God that there's no reason for any of us to boast. So once again, Paul here wasn't the least in the sense that he had sinned greater than anybody else. It was because of the revelation that he had. When you see yourself superior to others, it's because you've never truly seen yourself next to Jesus. A true revelation of Christ and who he is and his glory will give you a more accurate impression of who you are not and how blessed uh, you are to even have anything of God. Well, that's a powerful statement, powerful revelation here. In the same verse, we see that he said he was preaching among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, which sounds like a contradiction, but basically this is the same thing he's going to say later in this chapter. I'll deal with that more down in verse 19, but he talks about knowing the love of God which passes knowledge. He's talking about that it cannot be understood just through your own brain power. It's not an intellectual thing. It has to be a revelation knowledge that comes from the heart. And like I said, I'll deal with that down in verse 19. Verse 9, he says, And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. So his purpose, stated purpose right here, is to make all men see, not just a few. Paul was out to share this gospel with as many people as possible. And of course, he accomplished this in a number of ways. First of all, he traveled and ministered to people. He uh, just constantly was traveling. He didn't have his own home. He didn't have his own family. He devoted his life 100%, all of his energies, to getting the gospel out. And he didn't just do it from the pulpit. He did it when he was nearly shipwrecked on the ship. He preached to the whole crew. He did it when they were putting uh, wood on the fire and a viper came out on his hand and he shook it off and led people to the Lord there. Paul was just totally consumed with making all men see what is the fellowship of this mystery. But, you know, from a historical perspective, as we look back at it, you know, history always has 2020 vision. And as we look back at this, we can see that the way that Paul has impacted more people with the gospel, infinitely more times than he ever did through his own personal, physical ministry, is through the printed materials that he left behind, the scriptures that he wrote. And, you know, I believe that Paul would have been blessed, blessed, blessed to see the degree of influence he's had on the world. I mean, here we are nearly 2,000 years later, and we're reading Paul's writings. I'm sharing this with literally hundreds and hundreds of people through these tapes, and the amazing thing is there's hundreds of people that are preaching from these same texts, and then there's thousands and thousands of people that are reading it on their own. The Holy Spirit is quickening it unto them. And so Paul made an impact here. His purpose, he made it clear, but I don't believe Paul really understood. I don't think he ever had a revelation of exactly how much he was going to really impact the world with this gospel. He certainly saw the things he had been able to do physically. He saw those people go out and multiply, but he impacted the world much more than he ever realized. And, you know, I think that that's true of all of us, that sometimes we're harder on ourselves, and because we don't have the perspective of 2,000 years of history to look through, you know, and see what really happened. We sometimes forget the impact that our life has on others. But uh, I believe that all of us, if you are really trying to share the gospel and reach out to people, your efforts are probably having more impact than you ever realize. You know, my mother, 
of course, raised her family and tried to instill in them godly principles and things like that. But 50 years ago, my mother had no clue that she was ever going to be impacting people through radio, through television, through tapes, through different things. And she doesn't do it directly, but through what she put in me and the ways that she taught me about the Lord and many different things. She was one of the major factors in leading me in the direction that I've gone. And my mother is reaching millions of people through me. I really believe that that's the way that God looks at it. When we get to heaven, we're going to see not only what we did personally, but how we touch a life and then they go out and touch others, how we write something and maybe somebody on the other part of the world picks it up and listens to it, reads it, and gets changed or touched. or You know, there's just a lot more happening than what we realize. Paul certainly never had a clue about the impact his writings were going to make, even if he knew they were Scripture. I'm not sure that he would have recognized that the world was going to last another 2,000 years, that the Bible would become a perennial bestseller, that it's into every language under the earth, you know. I mean, there's probably no way Paul ever envisioned this, and yet he was being used to reach people. His purpose was being accomplished in ways he could have never realized. And I'm convinced that that's the same with me, it's the same with you, it's the same with anyone who is striving to reach out and impact other people with the power of the gospel. Well, we just don't need to underestimate, sell short, the power of the message that we preach. It is life transforming. And when you draw the Holy Spirit into this picture and the Holy Spirit quickens things to people's hearts, it's powerful. There is just no telling what's going to happen. You know, I've got examples of people that have gotten my tapes on a military expedition at the South Pole. And a, a friend of mine took an entire library down there because he gets, you know, you get locked in there for six months. There's nobody comes in or out. So he took tapes down there to uh, just literally minister to him while he was down there. Well, he left them there. When he left and his tour of duty rotated, he left them there. And the next year, somebody out of boredom listened to those tapes, got born again. I had a guy come up to me one time in a restaurant, and he, and he was the cook in a restaurant. And he heard me talking, and he came out and said, which one's Andrew Womack? And I introduced myself, and he said that he and his father were painting an apartment, and they moved the refrigerator after the family had already moved out, found a couple of my tapes under the refrigerator. And so just out of curiosity, they stuck them in a tape recorder while they were painting that apartment, and they both got born again, and their lives were turned around. And on and on the stories could go. I mean, how in the world would you ever know that, you know, I could affect somebody at the South Pole, somebody painting an apartment, and those are, you know, fairly obvious to see. But I believe that there's thousands of things that I haven't seen like that. And just like that, I believe that you also, if you are seeking to share your faith and sharing with someone at work, or you're raising your family and you're putting your efforts into that, or you're just teaching Sunday school class, you never know what you're going to be doing. I mean, this is really amazing to me. Paul is saying he wanted to make all men see and yet I can guarantee you out of Paul's things, he probably was putting his effort into his missionary journeys and things like this. These letters that were written to the church, I, I know that he recognized the flow of the Holy Spirit through him, but he probably didn't have a clue about the scope that these writings would make. And we also don't have a clue. We just need to, by faith, praise God and know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord, that it will accomplish what God intends for it to accomplish. You know, I had a Sunday school teacher that really impacted my life. My dad died when I was just 12 years old, and I really learned from other people that were in authority in my life. And this one Sunday school teacher, Jean Price, 
he was very strict, very hard. I remember a lot of the other kids would make jokes about him and stuff, but I always reject, I always um, respected this man, and I really admired him for what he had. He was an airline pilot, and anyway, this guy really has impacted my life, and yet I remember going back and talking to him long after I was already grown and, you know, in ministry, and he's not totally in agreement with the way I ministry. He's, from my understanding, not spirit-filled, and he probably would think some of the things I'm doing are not accurate, etc. But, you know, I went back and began to share with this man how important it was, the contribution he had made to my life. And I caught him one time. I don't know if this was typical, but I caught him on a day when he was kind of discouraged. He was retired. It didn't look like his life was going anywhere. And he was saying, well, I don't know if I've ever really been much service to anybody. You know, he didn't understand the impact that he made on my life, a Sunday school teacher. And he may not agree with some of the things that are happening in my life, and he may not be proud of it. But I can guarantee you, when we stand before the Lord, and I have many, many people that God has touched through me, that man, Gene Price, is going to be also accounted those rewards because of the impact that he made on my life. I tell you, to me, that's exciting. There's just so much more going on in the spiritual realm. The repercussions are just like when you drop a rock in the water and you see those ripples go out and out all the way to the end of the pond or the lake or whatever. I believe it's the same thing with our lives. I just want to encourage you with that. Paul accomplished what he was saying. Here was his purpose, greater than he ever could have imagined. And I believe that you are too. I believe that I am. And we need to encourage ourselves with that. He goes on to say in the last part of this verse, he says these things were hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. Now this is really important here because over in the book of Isaiah, chapter 44 and verse 24 The scripture says, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth broad the earth by myself. Now, the terminology here is very important. It says that Jehovah stretched forth the heavens alone and spread forth the earth by himself, signifying that there was no other agent in creation. And yet this verse is saying that he created all things by Jesus Christ. When you put this together with other scriptures, like in John chapter 1, verse 3, it says that all things were created by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. 1 Corinthians 8, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. You put all of these scriptures together, this is just another testimony to the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh. He was not a secondary God, an inferior God. This was God Almighty come into physical flesh, and he was God in physical form, just like it says over in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that God was manifest in the flesh. So this is a powerful witness to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 10, it says that the intent that the Lord had done all of these things was now unto principalities and powers and heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. So God's intent or purpose In this mystery, the Jew and Gentiles being one body and Christ dwelling in us, the purpose of this is that he wants to make something known. You know, again, the Lord saved us because of his love for us individually, and I'm not minimizing that. At other times, I will emphasize that, you know, very strongly. But you can also not, you you should not under-emphasize the fact that God created us and and redeemed us for a purpose. And that purpose or the intent is that we could make known under the principalities and powers. You know, the terminology in this verse where it says that he wants to make this known under the principalities and powers in heavenly places. 
This is the exact terminology that he uses in Ephesians chapter 6 when he's talking about that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness, spiritual wickedness in high places. I believe that's verse 12. So in in the context of chapter 6, you see that this is talking about our adversary, our enemy. We are fighting against these things. So this is describing demonic powers, the ruling hierarchy in the demonic system. And he says that the intent or the purpose is so that these principalities and powers in heavenly places, speaking of demonic powers, might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Now why would God want to reveal to demonic powers the manifold wisdom of God. Well, I believe that we could rule out that it's for the purpose of converting them or changing them. Satan and his host are not going to be redeemed. That is not what the Word of God teaches. And so it's not to inform them or bring conversion or repentance to them. I believe that the point he's making here is that God wants to show his glory, his power, his manifold wisdom, even to the demonic realm. He wants to rub their nose in it, in other words. That's modern-day way of saying it. He's wanting to just torment the devil. He wants to show even the demonic powers, his supernatural wisdom that he used in, in salvation. You know, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it was along these same lines where Paul said that the wisdom of this world is nothing. We have to have the supernatural wisdom of God. And it says the princes of this world, if they would have understood the supernatural wisdom of God, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. And I don't believe that that's limited to the physical people alone, but it's talking about the demonic powers, Satan and his demons, that were motivating these scribes and Pharisees and the religious people to crucify Jesus. If Satan really would have had a clue about what was going on, he never would have crucified Jesus. That granted Jesus access to the pits of hell, and he came out of there with the keys of death and of hell, and he actually perfected. Satan was motivating people to help fulfill God's will, and he certainly wasn't aware of that. Satan doesn't understand. He's ignorant. Well, let me rephrase that. Satan is not ignorant. He's stupid. He has information. He certainly is smart in comparison to us. He could outsmart us on his own. But anybody that fights against God is stupid. He doesn't have a lot of wisdom. He constantly sees things the wrong way. And that scripture there in 1 Corinthians 2 proves that. If he would have had the wisdom of God, he'd have never crucified Jesus. He would have had them trying to uh, keep him from being crucified because that exactly fulfilled scripture. So see, Satan does not understand spiritual truths. Again, in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man cannot understand the wisdom of God. And certainly, a demonic power can't really understand the wisdom of God. They're deceived. They're blinded by their own rebellion and sin. And so one of the purposes of the Lord redeeming the church is to show even to the demonic realm the supernatural power and blessing ability of God. We should rub the devil's nose in it. Just like Paul in the 19th chapter of the book of Acts, some demons jumped on a man and they said, Paul, we know, and Jesus, we know, but who are you? Demonic powers knew who Paul was. They knew who Jesus was, but they didn't know these imposters who were just using the name of Jesus without personally knowing him. We need to manifest the power of God to such a degree that even demonic powers know us. They say, oh no, he's coming to this city. Get ready. Brace yourselves. Amen. That's the way that God intended it to be. That's what he's talking about. The principalities and powers in heavenly places is reference to demonic powers. And it says that he wants them to know 
uh, the manifold wisdom of God. The word manifold simply means many faceted are many different aspects of. God's wisdom is certainly greater than any of us could understand on our own. It's not one-dimensional. God's wisdom is so infinite. His thinking ability, his perception, his the ways that God does things are just beyond the ability of human man to understand by ourselves. We have to have revelation knowledge from God. And, of course, in context here, the demonic powers certainly don't understand spiritual truths. They nearly have to just be shown. And we do that as we cast out devils, as we heal the sick, as we walk in victory and power and share the gospel and see people's lives changed. They see the manifold, the many-faceted wisdom of God. In verse 11, it says, According to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, this verse is revealing that salvation was not an afterthought with God. God did not create man and never anticipate that man would fall or rebel at him. And then, after the fact, God had to come up with some plan of salvation. This shows us that God had a plan of redemption in place even before man was ever created. And there's a lot of scriptures that go along with this. Revelation 13.8 talks about the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus didn't just die when he was physically here on the earth. In the mind of God, in the plan of God, this was already accomplished in a done deal from the foundation of the world. In Acts 15.18, it says, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. God had already anticipated this. Man's sin did not catch God off guard. It also says that God had promised eternal life to those who would believe before the world began. Now, man wasn't here, but God made the promise before anybody was here to hear it. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. And uh, Peter said that Jesus was foreordained before the foundation of the world. And so, again, that's reference to the fact that salvation and the plan of redemption was already provided by God before the need even existed. In Ephesians 1, 4, Paul said that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And so I've already made reference to that. I've got a footnote on that. Also, at 1 Corinthians 2, 7, uh, I've got footnotes on that. So this verse is talking about that God had already purposed this in Christ before the world began. In verse 12, it says, In whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. You know, this is an amazing scripture. It would have been something for God to have redeemed us. That would have been wonderful. It's more than any of us deserved. It's more than any of us could have ever really asked or expected. God is wonderful to forgive us. But it doesn't end at that. It goes much beyond that. It says that we even have boldness and access with confidence. You know, if you were to really think about this, this could just revolutionize your life. If you were to get these attitudes, instead of them just being words on a page, if you were to meditate until it became a revelation to you, what it means that you can have boldness in the presence of God Almighty. Sometimes we take this for granted, the mercy, the love of God that is spoken of. We get to thinking that God is just like somebody else over here, and we don't recognize that this isn't talking about a physical human being, somebody with frailties. This is talking about God Almighty, who the Scripture says you can't even see Him and live. You can't abide in your physical body. Your body couldn't handle seeing the glory of God. God is infinitely greater than anything we could imagine. And he didn't just forgive us, tolerate us. He's actually given us access to him with boldness and confidence. Praise God. What a wonderful thing. 
if we were to meditate on that and these attitudes become reality in us, it would forever, I mean, change your life, give you a brand new understanding about the true nature and character of God, that he didn't just tolerate us, he didn't save us out of a sense of debt or obligation, he did it because he loved us and has actually imparted unto us his righteousness, his glory, his power, so that we can actually come with boldness and confidence into his presence. Notice also it says that we come with confidence by the faith of him. It's not just our faith, but it's his faith. We have actually become a partaker of his faith. And I made a big point of that over in Ephesians chapter 2. Note there on verse number 8. In verse 13, Ephesians 3.13, he says, Wherefore, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. You know, as I said in the very first verse of this chapter, the first teaching on this tape, Paul saw himself not as a prisoner of Rome, but as a prisoner of God. He saw himself under the direct control and blessing and anointing of God. Not He wasn't looking at his problems in a way that produced discouragement, distress, fear, and uh, condemnation, guilt in his life. That's not the way that Paul saw himself, and he was desiring here that they wouldn't see him that way. You know, I've had things happen to me before that were really bad. I had some things happen here just... Uh, Two days ago that I won't go into any detail, but people around the office, Bible college students came up and said, boy, we're praying for you. And, and I appreciate it. I really do. I mean, they love me. They're expressing concern. I know that they mean well, and I just appreciate their heart. But the truth is that it hasn't been a big problem. I mean, I am keeping my eyes stayed on the Lord. God is blessing me, and I am not suffering. Now, I appreciate people's attitude. I'm not saying that I don't appreciate it or that their concern wasn't warranted. It's the right thing to do. I appreciate it. But I'm saying I'm not discouraged, and I see other people looking at me, and I feel just exactly the way that Paul is stating here. He says, Wherefore, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you. I'm not fainting, so don't you faint. Paul was encouraged. He was encouraging these people to be encouraged. And see, that's the way that it ought to be. That's the point that Paul's getting across. Sometimes other people take problems harder for you than you take them. You know, I found out that there is an anointing on you to be able to go through whatever situation you come on. There's a number of scriptures that refer to that, but one of them that I use a lot, it says, According to your days, so shall your strength be. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 25 And that was a blessing that was placed upon Asher, one of the children of Israel. And basically that's just saying that whatever you encounter, whatever your day is like, regardless of how much stress, how much problem there is that you face, there is a sufficient amount of strength to deal with it. Or another way of saying it is that God's provision is always, always greater than the need. God will give you a supernatural grace to deal with anything that comes your way. You know, when I was in Vietnam, I went through things that I wouldn't have thought I could have made it through. And in retrospect, you look at that and think, I can't believe that that didn't bother me. But when I was there, there was a supernatural grace and power of God that was available to me to meet those needs. I've gone through death of loved ones. I've gone through tragedy. I've gone through a lot of things. And when you look back at it, you know, you think, how did I keep from falling apart? But there's an anointing there to do it. I've learned firsthand, I used to think about what would happen if somebody held a gun to my head and challenged me and said, either renounce your faith in the Lord or I'll kill you. And I would try and anticipate what my reaction would be. But I was doing it without 
this supernatural grace that goes with the day. And as I would think about this, I'd say, God, I'm not sure. What would I do? But, you know, after going through a number of hardships and different things, I can see that when you come into those places, there's a grace that you have at that moment that you don't have prior to that in anticipation of it or either uh, after the fact when you look back. When you're without that strength, the supernatural supply of the Lord, you could not anticipate being that strong or you can't believe that you were that strong after it's over. But in the midst of the situation, God just gives you a supernatural strength. And that's the way that Paul was. Paul was sustained and he was blessed and so he was encouraging them not to faint. He hadn't fainted. If he doesn't faint, why should they faint? Amen. I've actually seen some people that took offense over other people's problems. It wasn't their own problems. They were so hurt over what had happened to somebody else. And the person themselves is doing fine, but they're hurt for them. Well, now, that's certainly not the way to be. And Paul is trying to tell them, you know, don't faint in my tribulations for you. In the next verse, verse 14, Paul begins to pray that this desire about them not fainting for him, he begins to pray for this exact purpose. And this prayer goes all the way from the 14th verse through the 21st verse. And I've got a lot of teaching on this. I am not going to be able to cover all of these things. Matter of fact, I've got a brand new series out on the love of God, uh, talking about God's kind of love, the cure for what ails you is the title of it. Uh, It's really a powerful album. I've had a lot of good response on this. And uh, it's based kind of on this right here. So I've got a lot of teaching. I'm just going to hit some of the highlights But let me summarize and say that once again, just like in the first chapter where he was praying that they would get a revelation of what they already had in Christ, once again here he's praying for a revelation, not that they would get something new, but rather they would draw out what is already there. See, this is the key to why he wasn't fainting. And as he's desiring for them not to faint at the hardships and problems they encounter, here's the key to it, is that you don't. Don't identify and say, well, I'm only human, and man, this is about to overcome me. If you look at it from just a human perspective and the way everybody else handles problems and what you don't have, your problem, etc., then you'll be depressed. But if you get this attitude that, man, in Christ I'm complete, I know that the strength I need to be able to go through this day has already been deposited in me by Christ, and I'm just praying that it'll come out. Father, I release it. I draw. I know that you've given it to me. Now I draw on it and command it to flow. If that's the attitude that you get, well then, I promise you, you will make it. You'll be like Paul to where you won't faint and you'll desire that others won't faint. It's a real key. So he begins to start praying. Here he bows his knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 15, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened, with might by his spirit in the inner man. And as I said, there's there's a wealth of information here. I'm just having to hit some of the highlights. But this strength is in your inner man. Most of us are trying to strengthen our outer man. We're going to self-help things. We're trying to educate our physical mind. And please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that there's a premium on ignorance. It doesn't need to be an either-or situation. There are certain things in the physical, natural realm that we need to do. But our real strength comes from the inner man, this born-again man. We need to become super dependent on the supernatural power of God that's on the inside of us. And this is what Paul is praying, that this strength would come from our inner man. In verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Oh, now that's an awesome, awesome statement. Most people 
use terminology like this, but in reality, most people don't want Christ to dwell in their hearts by faith. They want him to dwell there by feeling. They want to just be able to feel the presence of God. They want such an overwhelming presence, goosebumps every time something happens. They would like to see an angel every time they need help. They want some physical thing. Paul here is praying that it would happen through faith. And I can tell you that that's the only way that you will consistently have the Lord dwell in your life is through faith. Now, of course, the reality is that if you're born again, you do have Christ dwelling in your heart all of the time. But as far as the perception of him being there and the benefit that that's going to make on your life, it only happens as you access that by faith. You have to, by faith, believe that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. You have to, by faith, let him dwell in your heart. He is there, but you have to perceive that indwelling presence of the Lord by faith. And then he goes on to say that you being rooted and grounded in love. Boy, this is powerful. Like I said, I got four and a half hours of teaching in just this one three-tape album that I've released recently. Love is an open door to the things of God. Love will open up every area of your life. As it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. And so when you get into love, you are into God and all of the things that he has to offer. So this says that when you get rooted and grounded in love, then in the 18th verse, comprehension comes. Revelation comes. You know, one of the reasons that people aren't able to perceive the things of God is because they don't know about love. I actually had a woman in my office who I was trying to tell about the grace of God. But she had been abused when she was a child. Her husband had abused her. This woman was in her 60s, and she had had nothing but a life of abuse. And she didn't have a clue about what human love or supernatural God kind of love was like. So as a result, even when she read the Bible, it was all condemnation. It was all guilt. She was not perceiving the love of God. And I just, she couldn't understand even the most simplest thing I was saying about God. And so I quit trying to explain anything. I just went back to trying to get her to see that God loved her. And she's come back to me now months later saying that she's beginning to get it. And as she sees the love of God for her, all of a sudden her perception about this is coming clear. It's just exactly like this scripture is saying. You get rooted and grounded in love. Notice, you don't just get acquainted with it. You get rooted and grounded. Man, that's implying growth. That's implying patience, time, effort. As you get rooted and grounded in love, verse 18, you may be able to comprehend with all saints. Now, see, this shows that this isn't for just a few select people. Sometimes when I talk along these lines, somebody says, well, yeah, you're a preacher. And so that's it's understandable that you've got a revelation, but you just don't understand. I'm a layman, and it's not the same for me. Basically, what they're saying is God only reveals himself and gives true revelation and comprehension to certain select people. That is not what this verse is saying. This says that you might be able to comprehend with all saints. If you're a saint, if you're born again, this is for you. God wants you to have a revelation of his love and the accompanying comprehension, understanding that comes through that. He wants you to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. You know what this is talking about? It's about different dimensions. You know, when you see a painting hanging on a wall, you see a one-dimensional picture. You may see a bowl of fruit there, and yet it's only one-dimensional. And you know, this is what a holograph does, and some of the virtual reality things now, they're beginning to develop screens to where it gives dimension to it. It gives depth as well as just, you know, width, etc. 
In other words, it becomes 3D. We talk about three dimensions. Well, this mentions four dimensions. The breadth, length, depth, and height. In other words, it's just saying that there is so much more to God than just a casual little snapshot, a painting, a picture. You need to get into it to where you can actually experience the depth of it and see the reality. The difference between this and a casual understanding of God's love is the same as a person looking at a picture of something and then experiencing the thing firsthand. You know, if you were to see a picture of an airplane, that would be one thing. And you could learn a lot from it. But then if you could actually go up to that airplane, get inside of it, walk around it, touch it, see the different parts fly in the thing, I guarantee you, you would get much more out of that. Sometimes you can see a picture, like if you saw a picture of a 747 jet, and if you didn't, if you just saw a picture of it sitting on a runway and there was nothing around to compare it to, no trees or people or anything like that, you might not understand the size of it and the scope of it. But then when you stand up next to it, if you were to actually stand there up next to one of those tires that's as tall as you are, all of a sudden your perception just totally changes. Your comprehension, your understanding changes as you see the height of it, the length, the breadth, the depth. As you get it out of just a snapshot and you put it into comparison to yourself and things. See, that's when the real understanding. There is a difference of daylight and dark from a person that's actually experienced being in one of those planes and a person who just saw a picture of it, not in relation or comparison to anything else. And sad to say, there's a lot of people that in their relationship with the Lord, they've got like a snapshot of God and of some of his truths, but they've never put it in the relation to anything else. They haven't comprehended the height, the breadth, the length, and the depth. They might be able to recognize it and say some of the right things, but their perception is just skewed by this, and because of it, they're totally missing out on what God has for them. You know, I know that as I'm saying this, there's some people listening to me that God is quickening to you and basically showing you that this is what's happening with you. You've got some of the knowledge but it's just a one-dimensional thing. You have stopped with a surface knowledge. You haven't let God really reveal His heart to you and His nature. Boy, you need to receive that. And this is a prayer that Paul was praying for that exact purpose. You can take your name and put it in here. And instead of just saying, you know, in verse 14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Personalize it. And say, For this cause I, Andrew Womack, and praying that you, Father, our, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that you would grant me, Andrew Womack, according to the riches of your glory, to be strengthened with might. And just go through and personalize this. You're praying a prayer that you know is based on the Word. You know it's according to God's will. So you know that God hears it and that He answers it. And if you will pray this prayer in faith and begin to get a revelation of God's kind of love... I promise you that you will have the power of God begin to manifest itself in your life. In verse 19, he says, And to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, I made reference to this earlier, but it says to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. Now, if it passes knowledge, how can you know it? Well, the answer to that is that this is talking about a experiential knowledge, that you would experience the love of Christ, which passes just intellectual knowledge, just an acquaintance, information. You need to get into intimate communication with God. You know, in the Old Testament, the word know was used to describe the sexual relationship between a man and a woman that would produce a child. 
and it was talking about knowing her. And so it's talking about this intimacy. And he's saying that you would become intimately involved in the love of God. If you would ever experience and experientially come to know the love of God, then that passes knowledge. That passes the experience, the four-dimension experience of actually experiencing something and being in something like this jet where you get an actual feel for what's going on. That surpasses just a snapshot. Well, he says experiencing the love of God in a real way passes mere intellectual knowledge about God. And he goes on to say in this 19th verse that when you do that, you will be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, that is an awesome statement. This says that the key to being filled with the fullness of God is to have an experiential knowledge of God's love. Now, you could turn that verse around and follow it in reverse and and come to some great conclusions. If the key to being filled with the fullness of God is His love, then that means that if you don't have the fullness of God, guess what? You are minus a revelation of God's love. Now, again, you may have this snapshot of it. You may have some of the features. You might be able to recognize it and describe it to somebody else, but you don't have the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth of it. You haven't really entered into that reality of it with a true revelation of God or the fullness of God's love would be real on the inside of you. And there may be somebody saying, but you don't understand. I know God's love. I've got a revelation of it, but I'm in a problem. And I've just had this happen to me, and you don't understand how severe my situation is. Well, I'm not trying to minimize your problems. But I'm saying that God's love is so infinitely greater than any problem you're going through that I still hold to this, exactly what these scriptures are saying, that if you had a real revelation of God's love, it would so minister to you and supply your need that your problem would be nothing in comparison. Now, I'm not saying that in comparison to me or comparison to somebody else, you don't have a problem. But in comparison to God's love for you, it's nothing. And if you would get to thinking that way, what does it matter? You know, the Bible says in Psalms 139, if I make my bed in hell, there God is with me. Now, that's describing a terrible situation. And yet, if you could focus on the fact that God is with you, regardless of what situation you're in, then you would find reason to rejoice. You could praise God in the midst of terrible situations. You know, I've used the example before. I won't go into the same detail of a woman who was praying to uh, get her marriage healed, but she wasn't born again. And I said, lady, after a thousand years in hell, you are going to forget that you were ever married. Marriage is as important as I believe it is. It's not the main thing. You need to get your eternal destiny solved because after a thousand years in hell, you won't care about your marriage And if you get that attitude, I'm not saying that marriage is unimportant. I'm not saying that if you're going through a bad marriage or a divorce that it's not a problem. But I'm saying that even if you're in that situation, God's love for you is so great that if you could get a revelation of the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth of it and begin to experience God's love, it would make your terrible marriage seem like, oh, it's no big deal. Just 50 years down here on the earth, no problem. I'm going to live for eternity with God. You get that perspective, and I guarantee you, your problems are shrunk down to nothing. They're manageable. And that's what Paul is talking about. I know that there's some people that take issue with that. We are, we are just masters today at justifying ourselves and saying, but you don't understand how bad my situation is. I'm saying that regardless of how bad your situation is, you don't understand how complete, how wonderful God's love is. 
If you get into the fact that God loves you, it really doesn't matter about anything else. You know, when you first fall in love and you're in the euphoria of just, you know, falling in love with a person, it really doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter what the weather's like outside. It doesn't matter anything. You're just so excited about this person. Well, it ought to be that way with God all of the time. You can get into God's love, and the very fact that God loves you makes anything not only bearable, but I mean get to a place where it just is unimportant. You can rejoice in the midst of any situation, and that is what Paul is praying for. So if you aren't filled with the fullness of God, if you aren't having joy unspeakable and full of glory, etc., 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 it isn't because your problems are so big. It's because your vision is so small. It's because your revelation is lacking. It's not that you need to use more faith and stop all the problems in your life. You can't consistently, completely do that. But I tell you what you can do. You can get such a revelation of God's love that it just really doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter what's going on. I remember my wife, Jamie, when she got baptized in the Holy Ghost, the love of God just came over her, and we were at a youth group in New Mexico, and she was out in the cold and... Anyway, I don't remember exactly, but she was worshiping the Lord and something about being cold and her nose was frozen, her hands and her feet were frozen, but God loved her. That's all she could say. She didn't care. Out there nearly facing frostbite, but just the love of God overwhelming her. Nothing else matters. Now, does this mean that you're supposed to stay out there and freeze to death? No, no, no. But the point is that you can get so full of the love of God that physical natural things just don't discourage you and dominate you the way that they do in most people's lives. Most of us are putting our energies into changing the physical things, and then joy will come. No, the way to do it is to let the revelation knowledge of God's love come right now, whatever situation you're in. And if that happens, you'll be filled with the fullness of God. It doesn't matter what your problems are. In context, Paul was talking about being in prison and all of these things, facing possible death. Such a bad situation that other people were taking offense and being hurt for him. And he was saying, don't do this. He says, I'm going to pray for you so that you can get the same attitude because I'm filled with the love of God. The fullness of God is manifest on the inside of me. And praise God, we can be that way too. In verse 20, he says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. And of course, I've used this scripture Many times, and so I imagine that most of you have heard this, but this verse is often misquoted. People will say things like, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think. And they'll say, Amen, do you believe that? And everybody will chime in and praise God. That is not a true statement by itself. God certainly has ability to do infinitely more than anybody could ask or think. But as far as experience goes, you will not experience what God is able to do unless there is some power working on the inside of you. That's what this is saying. God's ability is limited according to your faith. Now, that's not to say that God himself is limited. God's overall purpose and plan is going to get done with or without you, whether you continue in faith or not, has very little impact on the overall plan of God. But in your life... God is not going to move independent of you or somebody else as an intercessor. And an intercessor can never totally uh, get God's perfect plan operating in your life against your will. All they are is to help you and undergird you, but ultimately you need to respond to God. 
This says that the power of God is going to flow according to the power that works in us. You need to let God's grace, God's faith flow through you. You need to cooperate by building yourself up and seeking God and expressing faith, operating in praise and worship and faith and speaking forth your faith. And if you aren't doing those things, it's wrong to say that God's power, He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think. As far as your personal experience goes, that's not a true statement. It has to be according to the power that works in you. Boy, that is powerful. I've already talked about this so much, I need to move home, but that is a tremendous truth. And I think this is one of the most misunderstood truths in the body of Christ today. Some people are thinking, well, why didn't God do something? God has all power. If God really loved me, why doesn't he just do this? They don't understand that scriptures like this has limited God's intervention in your life to the faith, the power that's working on the inside of you. If you are just standing there in total unbelief or even in rebellion, you can either block the power of God through your inaction or you can actually release the power of the devil. You have that power. Satan doesn't have power to overcome God, but you have the power to stop God. God has committed that much authority and power to you. Now, that's, those are some radical statements, and I know some people may not understand that. That's not because they're wrong. It's just because this is different than a lot of what's taught today. If you, if you don't understand that, you need to get some tapes that I've got on the authority of the believer. I've got a six-tape album on the spiritual authorities, the title of it, six tapes, and it would reveal some things to you. If you hadn't got that tape set, I encourage you to get it, and I use this verse in there quite a few times because this is a powerful, powerful truth. So once again, verse 20, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. You know, basically, verses 20 and 21 are just a praise. It's what we call a doxology or a benediction, where Paul had made his statements already about praying for them to be strengthened with the inner, in the inner man, for to receive a revelation of God's love and to experience God's love, which passes knowledge, that they'll be filled with all the fullness of God. Those were such great truths that Paul knew would change their life if they received it. He was so excited to think that the love of God is so awesome that if you get that, you'll be filled with the fullness of God, that he just broke out into praise. He started praising God and started worshiping Him. And, you know, that's the way that we ought to be. If you could really understand what it is to have God Almighty love you, and I'm not just speaking of you, I'm talking about me, mankind. God Almighty loves us, insignificant, nothing, mankind. In comparison to God, we are less than nothing. And yet God loves us. If you ever got an experiential knowledge of that, I guarantee you the fullness of God would come on the inside of you. And then just like Paul, you would break out into praise and begin to worship Him and uh, unto Him be praise and glory, world without end. I mean, that's exactly the response that you'd have. And I can even go as far as to say this, that if you are not praising God, if there is not joy and thanksgiving in your heart, you don't have a revelation of God's love. You don't have the dimensional revelation you may have a snapshot but you don't have the three dimension or the four dimensions mentioned up there in verse 18 you don't have a true revelation of it because when you do praise comes and i know some people are saying brother you don't know what i'm going through well you don't know what i'm going through 
I could promise you, most of you, if I was to share some things that have happened to me in the last 48 hours with you, most of you would think, I don't have a problem. Matter of fact, I've talked to some unbelievers in the last 48 hours, told them what's happened to me, and they said, man, I'm going to go home and just they weren't saying praise God, but they were saying, I'm going to I'm going to go home and just be thankful for what I've got. They can't believe. And yet I'm rejoicing and I'm praising God. You know why? Because of a revelation of God's love. I pray that you get that. I pray just like Paul prayed here, that that become a revelation to you. And the end result will be that you will be filled with all the fullness of God. Praise God. Father, I just agree with the people listening to this tape. And I pray these scriptures, Father, that they receive the revelation, the dimensional revelation of your love for them. And I believe the end result will be that they're filled with the fullness of God. In the name of Jesus, amen. On our next tape, we will continue and start our teaching from Ephesians chapter 4. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net, and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.